unveiling the secrets A-list copywriters use to make themselves and their clients millions. This is the Copywriters Podcast with your host, the world's greatest copywriting coach, David Garfinkel. All right, welcome back to the Copywriters Podcast with your host, the world's greatest copywriting coach, David Garfinkel. David, how are you doing today, man? Nathan, I'm good. How are you? I am doing fantastic and still trying to get used to this software, but getting over some of the hiccups and getting ready to produce the show and bat, and I'm glad to be back on the mic with you. Glad to be back. It's good to see you. It's good to see you too. So what do we have lined up for the listeners today? One thing that's going to be new to you when you become a copywriter, unless you've owned a business or grown up in an entrepreneurial family or been already in a business like music or acting or professional sports, that one new thing is risk. Now, it's not like you've never seen risk before. It's not like it doesn't exist anywhere else. Of course it does. It's that there are unique kinds of risk in copywriting that will be new to you. I haven't heard anyone else talk about this before. So I want to give you something you could really dig your teeth into, and that's what we're going to do today. But in fact, the biggest risk of all would be not to remember that copy is powerful and you're responsible for how you use what you hear on this podcast. And most of the time, common sense is all you need. But if you make extreme claims and or if you're writing copy for offers in highly regulated industries like health and finance and business opportunity, you may want to get a legal review after you write and before you start using your copy. My larger clients do this all the time. So let's talk about why we're tackling this topic. It's because risk is here and most people in copywriting don't know how to deal with it in a way where they end up winning most of the time. And I'd like to help change that. So today, I'd like to encourage you to start taking some of the risks you've been reluctant to take, help you to start weighing the upside and downside of any risk that you're considering taking, and overall to give you a framework to look at risk since it's such a big part of copywriting in so many ways. Now, when I say risk, there are so many different kinds of risk, and let's talk about what they are. I only want to zero in on a couple kinds, but you should be aware that there's more than what we're going to spend the bulk of our time talking about. So in copywriting and in owning a business, especially a direct response-based business, you've got external risk and internal risk. And the list of external risks is long. There's physical risks, there's financial risks, there's legal risks, there's reputation risks. And let's, let's talk about that for just a sec. And this isn't unique to copywriting, but it's something people newer to the game often don't think about until after the damage is done. I'm talking about reputation risk. So this is Thursday when we're recording this. On Monday, I got a note in a Facebook Messenger message from a guy who had just sent me a friend request. I hadn't even seen the friend request before I saw his note, which was a pitch. I really don't remember what the pitch was or who he was. I was less interested in what he was selling than the fact that I never wanted to hear from him or about him again. Now, 
this probably isn't going to cause him any trouble <laughs> unless he's so stupid that he asked me for a referral. But other people can be and will be a lot harsher than I was, and he would deserve it. See, it's possible to ruin your reputation by pulling clueless stunts like that on social media, which opens us up to a whole different kind of world of risk called people risks. Clients you'll never get, affiliates who will never take your emails, messages, or calls. If your reputation precedes you and it's a bad reputation, you're screwed before you even get started. I've seen this happen. So beware and don't end the game before you even get into it. But people risks in general, and then there are financial risks that are people risk lenders and investors. Don't get so hypnotized by dollar signs that you aren't thinking about the people that come with those dollars or pounds or euros or whatever currency is the coin of their own where you live. Because if anything happens that the lender or the investor gets uncomfortable about, believe me, people will show up. They do. Relationships are relationships. And when money's involved, they can go sideways in an amazingly short period of time if you end up with the wrong lender or investor. A word to the wise. There are also risks with employees and contractors. It's way too easy to think of people you hire as functions or outcomes rather than people, but they're still people. And some are much less risky than others. Again, this is not what I want to focus on today, but I want you to keep your antenna up for people risk. We'll talk more about how to look at any kind of risk and how to measure them before they're done. And actually, Nathan, I remember not recently, but a while back, you had taken some people risks you weren't aware of in terms of the clients you'd taken that really didn't work out so well. Am I right? I know I've, I've done that. I think all copywriters have to go through a phase where they kind of explore and learn which type of clients are right for them. I know that probably for the first few years of my career of doing this, I took on different clients and it's kind of a learning process. You take somebody on, you're excited about it, and then you realize, oh, I don't mesh with this person's personality or, oh, this person didn't actually meet the requirements for me to be able to help them. And I'm assuming me and you are not the only two people that have gone through this. I think this is probably something every copywriter goes through. Right. Because, you know, let's say you were doing data analytics or graphic design, maybe not graphic, maybe, you know, web development, something a little more mechanical, a little less personal. Um, it's not as big a deal. But with copywriting, sometimes you have to slip into the skin of your client mentally, emotionally, I'm not talking about physically here. That's a whole different conversation. But, um, you, you know, you, you have to do this method acting thing of, of becoming your client to write about them. And if you can't stand them or even if you like them, but you're just not comfortable with what they're doing or where they're at, that's going to be a problem. Mm -hmm. So, okay. Um, but that's not what I want to talk about today, even though we just did. I mean, what I really want to talk about today is much more fascinating to me. It's the kind of risks I call internal risks. I've dealt with everything I've mentioned up till now in my life, my career, so let me give you a little risk biography of myself so you can see where I'm coming from on this one. And this may be 
surprise. I really haven't talked about this before at all, anywhere. Um, when I got into copywriting in the early 1990s, I'd been through a decade of living on the edge, um, almost a decade. I'd gone from having a very stable, reliable, and reasonably boring corporate job as a business journalist to the random chaos of freelancing in writing and speaking, teaching, even coaching, uh, my first coaching clients then. And I'll be completely open about this. There were times when I was terrified. All I knew is that I had to do this. I couldn't explain that, but I knew I felt that way. And I couldn't go back or have lasted much longer in my life as a journalist and corporate executive with people to manage an expense account, office politics, and everything else, including all the baggage that went with that job. So during this eight or so years, it wasn't always smooth sailing, but it was good preparation for what came next as a copywriter. And I would say that that decade of adventure helped me get my bearings as a copywriter and end up writing more aggressive copy than I might have been able to do otherwise. But I didn't realize at the time how much risk-taking, especially at an internal level, has to do with identity, who you think you are, not who you want to be or what your goals are or who you think you should be, but who you think you are in the present moment. And I don't think this knowledge comes easy or quickly. It comes more from experience over time, taking stock of what you've done and seeing how it lines up with your beliefs about yourself. One thing that can hold you back is not having internal permission to see who you are. And you'd be surprised how many people don't have that permission. Another thing is not having permission to venture past the limits you'd set for yourself. And to me, that's where the real risk re occurs. That's where the real risk occurs and where the real biggest payoff comes from. And uh, let me, again, give you an example from my own life. And as hard as this may be, for you to accept, if you know me at all, for the longest time, I really didn't think of myself as a creative person. I could blame the media, especially TV and the movies for this, and I do to a large degree. My parents were scientists. Now, these days, I think scientists are some of the most creative people on earth. But when I was younger, normal scientists were seen as rational, level-headed, you know, and not creative people and incredibly boring. If you look at movies from the 50s and 60s when I was coming of age, the only scientists who were portrayed as creative were the mad scientists, the people creating Frankenstein, you know, the monster, odd-looking people who dressed funny, talked in a weird way, and more often than not, they were destructive, and many of them were evil, too. I started my career as a journalist because I was reporting facts rather than writing novels. I didn't think of myself as creative at all. In fact, I was sure I didn't have it in me. Now, this is a perfect example of how my identity really held me back from taking risks. If I'd been more open-minded about this, I would have understood that what my dad did in the basement in his spare time was creative. I mean, it was. He invented new timing clocks for race cars. That was his passion. He loved that. And because he didn't look or act like the mad scientists in the movies, and because our family didn't know other 
creative people, even though we did, but they all look kind of normal. Um, it never would have occurred to me that he was creative or that any of his friends were. He was remarkably normal and honestly a little boring in his behavior. As I look back on my life now, I can remember many moments when people told me I was creative and I just didn't accept it. I know now that despite all the dramatic stereotypes about creative people and the creative process, the way things really work most of the time is like the process James Clear describes in his book, Atomic Habits, about ice melting. I'm going to talk in Fahrenheit here, so all of our friends who you know, measure their temperature in Celsius just understand when I say 32 degrees, the freezing point of water, that's zero degrees Celsius. I think you'll get the point, though. What James Clear said in his book is that ice stays frozen at 25 degrees, 26 degrees, 27 degrees, 29 degrees, then right around 31 degrees, it starts to transform from a solid ice to liquid water. And at 32 degrees, it's melting, it's fluid. And what I learned over the years is that some to most creativity is incredibly tedious and boring. Repetitive actions with small or no results. Sort of like the stone cutter banging on the rock over and over again and then one blow. Transformation, the giant stone crack. So what I learned about creativity through my own experience and recognizing that I was coming up with ideas that produced interesting results, including with copywriting money, sometimes millions of dollars, I realized that's a form of creativity. But I also learned it by hanging around other creative people and talking to them about how they did what they did. And this didn't happen overnight. My awareness, my own change in my identity. I studied a lot. I went down rabbit holes. I read things. I took seminars. I watched videos. And now I'm willing to take risks I never would have taken 20 years ago or even thought about or considered possible. A lot of the risks are not that dramatic or flamboyant. I think what we do in this podcast is a little more dramatic and flamboyant than everyday life. But, you know, what I saw in the movies very often had to do very little with what goes on in real life. So obviously that's true looking back. I didn't know it at the time. To be in this kind of field, we have to be okay with taking risks. When you, when you say specifically creativity, I've always kind of felt like a creative person. I'm shocked to hear that you, don't, you didn't feel like you're a creative person because music is such a big part of your life and writing is such a big part of your life. I just kind of always, since I've known you, I've always just thought of you as a very creative person. Yeah, but you've only known me for about five years. If you knew me 25 years ago, you might have just thought of me as a quirky person. <laughs> I don't know. But, you know, I, I think for me it was a blind spot. I mean, have you had any experiences yourself where there were risks you were not likely to take because of how you thought about who you were? I think all of us have that. Starting a business and putting myself out there and putting 
products or services out there at first was kind of scary because you always have like the, I'm not good enough. People aren't going to like this. If I put it out there and people don't like it, what's that say about me? If I just pretend like I'm this great creative person and I just never let my stuff be judged, then I don't have to worry about having my illusions shattered. But um, I think I was lucky that very early on, I learned to just not care what people thought and enjoy doing things just for myself. So maybe that's a little bit selfish, but I think I was able to overcome that a lot earlier in life than most people do. Maybe it's selfish, but I don't think it's bad. I think it's, it's, it's really good. And you know, everyone has their own path for sure. Um, let me, let me talk about an important distinction and, um, I'd, I'd really love to hear what you have to say about this too. This is how I believe uh, you should look at um, especially internal risks. It's okay to do something that takes you out of your comfort zone. In fact, it's more than okay. It's necessary. It may feel a little scary. And of course, by definition, it will certainly be uncomfortable at times, but it's the only way you can grow. But What's not okay is to take a risk by doing something that goes against your values. You know, here's a sort of exaggerated example. If you're an atheist, you really shouldn't promote something that's heavily religious. If you're deeply religious, you're really fighting a losing battle in yourself if you're promoting an offer that you feel goes against the core values of your religion. Now, these are just examples. I firmly believe that whatever it is, you need to be able to get behind the offer you're promoting. You just might need to do a little exploration inside yourself to discover what your values are. And if you're pretty sure you know them, then to clarify them into lines you will not cross, whatever that may be for you. Um, does that about values? I, in fact, I'm almost sure that that rings a bell for you because I've seen you we've talked about and I've seen you do a lot of Facebook posts on those particular topics. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree with you. I, if I don't find myself in alignment, both with the client and the product, if there's any kind of like iffy feeling about it, I just won't take the job on. Um, again, though, I had to learn that I had to learn that through taking on some of those jobs that I wasn't very excited about. And then realizing I just can't write well for this. It doesn't, it doesn't, it's not, in alignment with my values. And I know there's copywriters out there that can totally take on a persona that they have no agreement with and write for it anyways. I just, it, it doesn't work for me. Uh, it sounds like it doesn't work for you, but I have met copywriters that can totally sell something that they don't believe in at all. Yeah. I mean, so, uh, you know, at a meta level, their values are not that that the offer needs to align with their values. Their values are, I, I can write copy for someone, I can sell anything. I mean, you just need to know that about yourself, right? Um, but <laughs> but people like that too. It's not my way of doing things, but it's a big world, a lot of different people. I guess it does match up with their values then. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's how I look at it. Um, well, another thing to remember about taking risks uh, let's move away from this sort of deep discussion about values and, to, and broaden it out a little bit. Just because you're willing or even excited to take risks in one area 
doesn't mean that you have an openness to risks in every area. Um, one example, you may be wide open emotionally and willing to take all kinds of emotional risks. For ex- and this is just an example here to make a point. But you may be very cautious when it comes to making any kind of promise or claim in health or finance. And don't think there's something wrong with you if your risk tolerance is super high in one area and very low in another. There's nothing wrong with you because of that. All it means is that you're afflicted by a very common condition. It's called being human. (laughs) So does that spare any thoughts? Because, you know, I, I think it's very easy to start beating ourselves up and say, well, you know, I can... I can go wild here, but I'm kind of a little cautious here. But that's not necessarily bad or even unusual. Do you have a problem with Kindle books? I do. Sometimes I really just want to hold a book in my hand so I can turn the pages and highlight stuff and make notes. That's one reason I recently released the print version of my book, Breakthrough Copywriting. And listen to this. On Facebook, I've gotten pictures posted from around the world. Pictures of people holding their printed copy of Breakthrough Copywriting in their hands, including one from an A-list screenwriter and marketer in L.A.'s famous Topanga Canyon. He was reading the book in his hot tub. Breakthrough Copywriting is a great book for you, whether you are a beginner or an A-lister yourself or anywhere in between. It costs a tiny, tiny fraction of my $5,000 ahead seminar that the book is based on. So check out Breakthrough Copywriting on Amazon.com. Now, back to the show. A lot of what you're talking about today is just kind of getting over those parts of your personality that self-sabotage or uh, the inner critics that are constantly running you down. And sometimes those are put into us by our parents and our teachers, maybe the media, like you mentioned earlier, sometimes they're just put into it. Sometimes we just have an experience when we're eight years old and we tell ourselves, oh, I'm no good at this, or, oh, I'm not the type of person that is able to do this or is very good at this. It's a lot of hard work to examine those things and figure out why you're telling yourself those stories and figure out how to tell yourself better stories. And especially as if you're somebody who isn't going to do the nine to five where you just show up to work and someone tells you what to do, but you're going to actually go out and get clients or go out and promote your own business, doing that work, trying to figure out where those stories come from, trying to figure out how to not let them rule your life is almost a prerequisite. But a lot of people, I know personally, even for myself, uh, a lot of my own earlier failings in my entrepreneurial and copywriting career came to the fact that I was looking for easy templates to use, or I was looking for which product is hot in the market right now. And it wasn't until I started doing that inner work of, of what you're talking about in today's podcast episode that I actually started seeing major breakthroughs in my own career. Yeah, thank you. That's, that's really helpful. And, you know, one of the things I think it's real easy for a cynical person to say is, oh, that's, that's so much bullshit. This, this doesn't matter. Just, you know, put your nose down to the grindstone and get to work. And yeah, that's fine if you have a job and uh, you're working for someone else who's controlling your nose and the grindstone. Um, but where it starts to show up that this is not bullshit, that this actually matters, is 
when you freeze or when you have a panic attack or something even worse, you know, some kind of health event, or when, you know, you're just procrastinating endlessly. Um, that's why the inner work and doing the inner work doesn't mean you won't have any problems. It probably means you'll be able to deal with problem. You'll probably have fewer and you'll be able to deal with them without, you know, becoming immobilized or, or, you know, freaked out. All right. So let's talk about how do you assess risk? How do you measure it? And here's a real simple rule of thumb for assessing it. Imagine the worst thing that could happen. If you can't handle that and really think about what is the worst thing that could happen, if you and, and make sure it's not, you know, you're not catastrophizing. You're not like, you know, doom skating. It, it, it really it could happen. Don't take that risk. You know, let's make this really simple. Suppose there was this amazing pill and, well, let's suppose you wanted to live forever, you know, um, like Irene Cara in Fame, I want to live forever, right? <laughs> and so you take this pill, and if you take it, there's a 50% chance that you'll live forever, but there's also a 50% chance that you'll die instantly. Unless you're ready to die right away for the possibility of immortality, that's probably a risk you don't want to take. Of course, most risks are not that clear-cut or that simple, but the guideline is if you can't handle the worst possible outcome, that guideline still stands. Now, suppose you want to get some advice from somebody about taking a risk. Who should you turn to? Uh, let's talk about a couple people you don't want to turn to and then the kind of person you do. First, don't talk to someone who has a much higher risk tolerance than you, maybe someone who has no filters at all, maybe even someone who's a psychopath. Don't They may be a very exciting person to hang out with, but their advice is probably not going to fit your risk profile unless you're just like them. And in that case, why would you be asking for advice from anyone anyway? Secondly, and more important, don't get your advice from someone who has a lot invested. And this, this one's big. So listen to me, even if you've been, you know, focusing on the walk or, or whatever you're doing while you're listening to this, focus on this one. Do not get your advice about taking a risk from someone who has a lot invested in you staying just the way you are. There are sometimes people who really are depending on you never to change. And while they may have your best interest at heart by wanting to protect you, they won't be able to help you come to a clear-headed decision. So those are the two type of people I would say don't ask for advice. Who would you ask for advice for? A lot of times people who might think they have your best interests at heart are not the best people to take advice from either because especially when it comes to risk, they might tell you, no, don't launch that new product. It's foolish. Or no, don't quit your day job to go full-time copywriting because client work is not steady and reliable. And I don't think that they're sabotaging you because they want you to stay where you're at. I think that a lot of times some people just don't have the faith or don't have the it takes something special to do this and not everybody has it and they might not be trying to sabotage you. They might just be seriously concerned for you and give you bad advice, not realizing that it's bad advice. I agree. I used to say what it takes is 
testicular fortitude, but I realize that's excluding women. So we could say ovarian fortitude as well. <laughs> Not everyone has it. And if you do, then certainly you don't want to talk to someone who doesn't get it. But let me tell you about the kind of person I would recommend talking to. And it's not someone who has your best interests at heart. I would recommend talking to someone who has experience taking risks, taking the kind of risks you're taking, and someone who cannot look at this as an advocate for you, like you were saying, but someone who can look at the situation objectively and see you for who you really are, someone with patience who can walk you through the pluses and minuses, because ultimately it's got to be your decision. But if they can help you get some clarity to get your decision, I think that's good. You can come to a conclusion on your own terms, an honest conclusion. Finally, there's one last kind of risk before we wrap up that's external, but it will definitely affect you internally. And you need to get used to it once you're writing copy, using copy for big offers. It's going to fail, not always, but eventually and regularly. And the bigger the audience, the harder you're swinging, the higher your goal, the more likely it is that your copy will fail. Sometimes the best copywriters I know writing in the big arenas have hit rates ranging at the low end of one in five or 20% to the high end of three and four or 75%. But the guy who said 75% likes to brag a lot and his numbers might not really be that high. And there's just about no way I've ever heard of to totally insulate yourself from the bad feelings that come from failing. Now, by no means does it need to destroy you. But if you have any feelings at all, you'll be deeply disappointed when something fails and maybe more upset, and you'll learn to get over it. Just understand that failing regularly is a delayed part of the price of admission to this game and this business. Now, in on the upside, in my experience, there are few things in life, and there are a few, but there are very few things that are better than a winning sales letter or a VSL. But you can't win them all. So go with the flow and enjoy the good times when they come. I couldn't have stated it better. The only thing that I can add to that is when things flop, learn from them, learn what you can and use them as a lesson rather than a deterrent to try again in the future. Yeah. And in a way that makes it less of a risk. It's like, well, either this is a win or this is an important lesson. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. David, a lot. this was a, a slightly different episode than I thought it was going to be, but I think that a lot of this stuff is, like I said, copywriters are like, give me the headline template that's going to make my sales letter work. And the truth of the matter is, is the stuff that we talked about in this episode is really the foundation that makes those templates work, that makes those uh, quick, ha quick copy hacks work. If, if, uh, if you spend all your time focusing on templates and, and tweaks and all that stuff, and you're not doing some of this more difficult inner work, you're not going to be able to leverage and see the results that you want to as a copywriter. So I just want to thank you for kind of taking a risk and putting this episode together. Well, great way to put it. And uh, you're welcome. And thank you. All right, man. Uh, 
if the listeners want to check out more, they can always head over to copywriterspodcast.com. Make sure that you're subscribed on your favorite podcast app so that you don't miss any episodes in the future. And anything else before we're out of here, David? Yeah, just one thing. Next week, we're going to have someone on. I was telling her about this episode. She's been in sales and in the acting business, and she really understands risk. Um, She might tell us a little bit about that in her own career. That could be uh, helpful to somebody, whether or not you're in acting, uh, if you're a copywriter, an entrepreneur, because she's all those things too. All right, David. Until next time, man, we will catch you later. Catch you later. Hey, if you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast app so we can get into ears of more listeners. Thank you. This is the Copy and Funnels Podcast Network.